This podcast is brought to you by StoryKingBooks.com. Sign up to receive a free copy of my latest ebook novella, Kane's Confession. If you would like to learn how to support this show, visit www.patreon.com forward slash the Story King. And now for today's episode. Welcome to the Story King podcast, the show all about fiction, film, and form. I'm your host, John Carlo, and today I have blogger slash storyteller slash U.S. veteran Gary Phipps. Father, husband, veteran, paratrooper, marketer, and writer, I'm super excited to introduce my listeners to today's guest. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Gary Phipps. Well, welcome to the Story King podcast. I'm so glad you're here, Gary. Hey, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. (laughs) So, as I start all my uh, interviews, I like to ask my guests, what is your story? Why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah. So, uh, so do you want the, the whole story going back all the way, uh, or uh, how quick of a story you want? <laughs> Let's take, uh, the shortened version, whatever you want to uh, share there. Gotcha. Uh, shortened version. Uh, I was born in the Midwest, uh, in Illinois, right on the river and a little river town called Alton, right outside of St. Louis, uh, St. Louis, Missouri. My mom and dad were not in a good way. Uh, so I was adopted by my aunt and uncle at a young age. Uh, they were pastors showing up. Great memories, nothing bad. Um, made a lot of good friends. Went to high school, was kind of a party kid, you know, going on all these, didn't make great grades and ended up joining the army after that. Uh, didn't know what I was going to do really with my life. And I had always kind of wanted to join the army. So I went ahead and did that. Uh, ended up getting married to my childhood sweetheart. Started a family while I was in the military. Deployed twice to Iraq. You know, we got three kids now. Got out of the army in 2016. Uh, became a marketing manager uh, out of happenstance, almost uh, just from doing freelance stuff on the side. And uh, that's where that's where I'm at today. Uh, currently working as a marketing manager and. You know, uh, I got my family of five. We really, uh, I'm pretty happy. <laughs> I, I got a family of five too. So I got three kids, three boys. So I understand what that's all about. Nice. <laughs> I only got one boy. <laughs> one boy. Nice. Yeah. Well, yeah. I want to back up to your military experience. So what year was this that you joined the army? I joined in 2006, in February 2006, uh, out of Nashville, Tennessee. And you said that you were deployed twice. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I went to, well, technically three deployments. I was in Iraq in 2007 for what they called the surge. Mm. So President Bush basically overloaded Iraq with a bunch of soldiers. And I was there for 15 months for my first actual combat deployment Mm. and then came back to the States for a couple of years and then got deployed to Haiti for about six weeks for the earthquake that they had back in 2010. And then in 2011, went back to Iraq for another nine months. Oh, wow. Well, thank you for your service, by the way. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, what's one memory from your army days that you feel really shaped you and that you won't forget? Uh, 
I mean, I went in, I went into the army kind of ex- expecting the bad things could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had a lot of guys that I served with that seen a lot of the same stuff that I did that, you know, they, they, and, and they may very well be more messed up mentally from it. I feel like I handled it better mentally because mm-hmm. I almost expected it. I mean, I joined as a single guy initially to go on an adventure, to get out of America, to fight bad guys. You know, I, I liked explosions. I was a, the stereotypical red blooded American, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I got that, <laughs> I, I, I got that experience in spades, but uh, I went home on mid tour leave, which is kind of like uh like halfway through your deployment, if it's long enough, they let you come home. So I came home on two weeks and me and my wife who, you know, we grew up together. We've known me and my wife have known each other since we were four years old. Mm. Uh, but she moved away for a number of years and and I came back home and we ended up meeting up at a party and we ended up getting together. And then we kind of, it both clicked in our heads. Like, Hey, we love each other. Like, let's kind of keep this going. And whenever I got back to Iraq, I was like, there was going to be a future. Like, I wasn't going to like get killed in Iraq and I wasn't just, my purpose wasn't meant to just fight bad guys. I was like, Oh man, I can have a life and a happy life at that. Um, so that was a pretty pivotal moment for me in, in Iraq. I mean, if you want to look for the, the Hollywood version, uh, I mean, there was plenty of times where, you know, we were getting mortared or just a real sketchy situation. You know, there's gunfire right outside the wall and it makes you think, you know, it makes you think of, not everybody survives this sort of stuff. Uh, so it was definitely a gut check, but it was never like that for me, I guess, as it's portrayed in the media and the, and the and TV shows, mm-hmm. as far as like a soldier coming to a realization of, uh, you know, like some kind of epiphany. It wasn't for me. It was like, I just want to get home. I just want to get home and raise a family. I want to like live in peace if, if possible. And um, I appreciate the experiences that I got from being over there. Cause I mean, I lived, I spent two, almost two and a half years of my life in Baghdad mm-hmm. in the surrounding areas. And you get a whole mixed bag of experiences when you're there for that long. And it almost kind of bleeds together into one memory of like, it's a past life. And that's mm-hmm. kind of how I view it. A lot of veterans like to, after they get out own that they are a veteran and that's almost, they own it too much. It becomes their personality. And for me, I try to preach to other veterans that are either still in or that got out that might be messed up by PTSD. I try to tell them, Hey, that was literally a chapter in your mm-hmm. book. You don't have to make it your complete story. That can just be a chapter. And then guess what? You have plenty more exciting chapters to move on to that you don't even know about. But so, so many people will get pigeonholed just into that experience that they had and then they identify with it for the rest of their life. And, and to me, as a veteran who's been through that stuff, I see it as sad because I feel like these veterans have more of a life to live than they realize. And is that really the thing that makes PTSD even harder to overcome? It's it's Because it sounds like you had the epiphany while you were over there that, you know what, I actually do want a civilian life. I have this woman that I love and, you know, we can start a family. Do you think for a lot of other guys, though, they, they come back, they've had whatever awful experience they've had or whatever they've seen, and they can't get a new life back home. So they kind of over identify with their 
army experience, military experience. Absolutely. Yeah. They, uh, so many people will get out and they'll, you know, and, and it's good that those veteran organizations exist. You know, there's programs out there, there's communities of veterans that help each other out and that's awesome, but it can get to a point where that's all you're about. And I mean, I, I have a friend of mine, he's my best friend from growing up. He's a firefighter. He's an EMT firefighter. And, and I love the guy to death. And if he ever hears this, so he'll, he might be a little pissed, but uh, that's kind of all he's about now. And, and, and I see him and every time I see him at a party or anytime we go anywhere, the conversation always goes towards firefighting, EMS, EMT. And I'm almost like, bro, there's more to you than that. And I, and I don't think he realizes it. Hmm. And I don't know what to do about it other than make it aware. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So do you have did you have any PTSD yourself or you were not it sounds like you didn't really have any surprises. You knew exactly what you were getting into even when you joined the army. You it sounds like you had just full awareness, which is not the same thing as actually going through it, but did you have any type mm -hmm. of PTSD that you had to deal with or Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um I didn't know it at the time, especially while I was still in um, me and my wife would be driving down the road and all of a sudden I would have, I didn't know it at the time, uh, but it was like a panic attack. It would come out of nowhere and yeah. I didn't know what was going on with me. My heart would race. I would get dizzy. And, uh, and then I eventually down the road, I ended up going to see a therapist and, and she specialized in PTSD cases and she put me through the whole test that she does. And at the end I was like, so, you know, what's the deal? Do I have PTSD? She said, imagine there's a rope. And the rope is being frayed. She said, when that rope is frayed to the point where it breaks, that's PTSD. She goes, your rope is just really frayed. And I said, that is the coolest way I've ever heard it put. And she goes, <laughs> and that means your rope can be fixed and you know, you can get over it. And I was like, man, that helped a lot. Like just her saying that alone helped a lot. It helped me understand it. Cause I didn't want to be one of those veterans that, would identified with, Oh, I got PTSD. The reason I'm a crappy person is because I went through this stuff. You know, I'd rather, yeah, I went through some hard stuff, but I got over it. You know, that's rather the mentality I would have, I guess. Right. And it sounds like some of that is physiological, like your body responds a certain way while you're at war and just doesn't know how to turn it off when you come back home. Yeah. And another way I had that explained to me was, let's say you're on a roller coaster. Well, when you go to combat, you're on that high point of the roller coaster, the high excitement, and you can be there for so long. I mean, I was there for 15 months, my first deployment. And after a while, you kind of just, that's life. You live over there. Like there would be multiple days in a row where I would never, I wouldn't even think about the US. It was just my life. I lived in Baghdad. This was life. So you end up riding that high for so long, but when you come home and there's no longer the threat of getting mortar. There's no longer the threat of getting, you know, shot. Uh, there's no high intensity, you know, with your everyday life that you come home. And even though the roller coaster is down here, you still feel like you're up here. And, right. and it's a, it's an adjustment period. And, and, and unfortunately some people don't adjust enough to fix it. I seen the same thing they did, but they had a different reaction and that's okay. But I also want to try to help them by explaining it like a book that's why I like the book story is like, that was a chapter 
you can move mm-hmm. on from that chapter to a different chapter. And, uh, and, uh, I don't know, uh, right. hopefully, you know, those people that are affected, you know, by those experiences can, can get over them. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's not their whole story is what you're saying. Yeah. So yeah. during our correspondence, you told me you've always considered yourself a storyteller, speaking of stories, but that you've only recently yeah. started writing. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. For the most part, I, um, I thought about writing my, my second deployment to Iraq in 2011, I had this real crappy laptop and I decided, you know, I'm going to try to write something. And I was like, cause I really, I felt like I could, and I didn't know why, but I felt like I had a story I wanted to tell or, or create. I didn't even know what kind of writing I wanted to do. I didn't know if I wanted to do fiction or like a autobiography or, or anything. I really didn't know. So I, I did a bunch of random things and I wrote like the first two chapters of multiple things and, and I, it wasn't really sticking. And then, uh, and then it kind of petered off and I didn't really deal with it. And I got out of the military, got a job. And then I, uh, I wanted to sit down again. One day I was at work and I said, you know, I'm going to start a WordPress page. I'm going to put my stories on there and I'm just going to write whenever I feel like it. And I've always been in my friend group, I'm always the, the, the guy that come up with the idea. I'm always the guy like, Hey guys, let's do this tonight. Let's, uh, let's do this or let's throw a party or, Hey, I got a story, you know, and I, and I'll, and I'll take command of the room, not because I necessarily want to, but it really, really comes natural for me. And I, I don't know why that is, but I, I, I'll tell a story with enthusiasm. I, I, I was having a conversation with somebody the other night. And they said that, you know, well, they're like, whenever I try telling a story, it just doesn't come out the same way that you do it. And I said, well, the reason is if you don't act like you're interested in the story, why would anybody else be interested in it? Sure. And so you have to tell a story with enthusiasm, with passion, with meaning, and you got to hold their attention. I feel like I could bring that to writing more if, you know, I, I do write more, which I'm trying to. Um, but as far as oration, type storytelling. I've always appreciated the fact that that was the one guy in the village that passed down the, 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 the past generation stories to the younger folk. And I don't know if you've ever tried to explain anything to a eight-year-old, but when you do, you have to hold their attention. And the only way to do that is to be enthusiastic and make it interesting. And adults mm-hmm. are the same way. I mean, if you have a story about a funny instance that happened at the restaurant last week, it could be a mundane situation. But if you tell it the right way, it's gonna people are gonna enjoy it, and uh, right. you can do that with a, a a number of different types of stories, I guess. But I just I just like doing it. I don't I don't know I don't know why. <laughs> no, no, it's cool. I mean, I I have one particular family member who can't tell a story to save their life. They include every little detail. <laughs> There's no point. It takes so long to get it out, and we're just all bored by the time they get to the end. So that's the first step in writing is being able to yeah. vocally articulate it, you know, as, as you said. As I was looking over your writing, you have everything from poetry to sci-fi, short stories, general musings about life and death. What would you say is your favorite genre to write and why? I don't know. That, that, that is my honest opinion. I, I'm, I'm so early on, I think, in my writing process, I guess, if you want to call it that, but it's almost therapeutic to me in a way. If I, if I have a, um, idea, like my job allows me to be kind of flexible with what I do at work. I'm on the computer all day. I do, 
a lot of digital marketing. I do a lot of answering emails and stuff. And I, and I have some downtime. So on those slow days that I have, I'm like, if I have an idea that just hits my head and I'm like, hey, I'm going to write this down. Like uh, at the end of like the poetry thing, I'm not a poet at all. I, I just thought it was funny because I can, it's easy to write that for me. To just rhyme, all you're doing is rhyming a, a, a combination of words and making it funny or interesting. So I included things that happened in 2020 and just you know spelled it out, and it people seem to like it. And then same thing with the short stories. I mean, I, I'm interested in prepping, so I wrote a uh, a prepping short story about uh, like kind of a worst case scenario if a tyrannical government ever took over, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, or, or or sci-fi. I really love space. If uh, all my friends will tell you, we actually, I created a little club for me and my close friends and we're called the space pirates. And I made that up off the top of my head. I made everybody pick their own nickname. So what is your nickname in, in this uh, space pirate club? Well, it originally started out since I started the club, I got to pick my own name, which wasn't fair because every other member The way they had to decide their name was, I said, imagine you have a gun to your head and you have to pick your name in the next five seconds. (laughs) So whatever came to their head stuck. Now, since I made the club, I I picked Star Fox. I played a lot of Star Fox whenever I was a kid and I always loved Star Fox. So I was like, oh, that's my name. But then I was like, all right, that's not really fair. Well, they ended up nicknaming me Wildcard because Mm. it'll seem like when we're all hanging out, everything will just be flowing. And then I'll just fly in out of the corner with some crazy stuff. And they're like, wild card. I think it comes from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I don't know if you watch it, but um, yeah. So I'm I'm wild card. We have uh, other names like, what is it? Nighthawk. We have White Horse. We have the Equalizer. We have Ricochet Rhinestone. uh, We have Crystal. We have a bunch of different people in there. But it's just a group of friends that likes to hang out. And they're all really good people. And so we're like, why not make it a club at... And it solidifies kind of the group. It makes you feel special, like you're part of a team. And being from the military, that was that's a big aspect of the military. It's being part of a group or a team of people that kind of have your back, you know, mm-hmm. and they're proud to be in that group that you're in. And I think by me making this Space Pirates group, and, and, and I don't think many of them would disagree with me in the fact that it has made our friends group closer just because we gave it a name, just because we have fun with it and gave it a nickname. And uh, I think more people should do that. I think have more fun with life. Why do people take everything so seriously? You know, it doesn't have to be. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds it sounds fun. It is. So you currently work in marketing for a trucking company. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's a, about a mid-sized trucking company. I mean, they got Probably about 1,500 employees total. We got uh, nine different locations throughout the Midwest. And they didn't really have a marketing department before I came on. And I did freelance digital marketing beforehand because I didn't really know what I was going to do after I got out of the Army. So uh, they ended up giving me a call saying, hey, would you like to help out? And I said, yeah. So it's uh, it's worked out better than, uh, than I thought. It would, I guess, at this point. So it's it's nice. I mean, they got me traveling. I'm down here in San Antonio right now and recording driver interviews and uh, you know doing doing my best to to shed a good light on the company. But I mean, it's obviously not my passion, but it also gives me more freedom than I would have. You know, working some dead end job that you know I wouldn't enjoy. Absolutely. 
So what kind of marketing do you do for the trunk, trucking company? Uh, it's mainly to attract drivers. Um, every trucking company out there, their lifeblood is the number of drivers they have. Hmm. Uh, the more drivers you have, the more trucks you can order. The more trucks you can order, the more freight you can ship, and the more money you make. So it all comes down to the driver. And there's so many different companies out there that you know you got to make it known why your company sticks out from the rest. And and part of my I guess storytelling process is telling the story to the drivers or potential drivers as to why we're a good company. And uh, it's hard to do. It's hard to do, especially in trucking, because uh, it's not a sexy industry. You know, it's right. not a super exciting industry. So you have to get really creative with the content that you put out there to attract drivers. You got you to take into account most truck drivers are between 45 and 60. Uh, and a lot of them aren't on social media. Or if they are on social media, what platform are they on? It's Facebook as of right now. Mm-hmm. Now that'll shift over time. So you got to pay attention to the trends. You got to see what they're really into. What, what would spark the interest of a trucker? You know, you got to get into the psychology of it almost. And it's kind of weird because I never thought I would be in the, in the trucking business. But uh, I, I guess there's weirder things. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's interesting. And it's, it can't be an easy job either. Uh, being on the road for so long, it's, it's got to be a tough job to market and recruit those people to, uh, to give up that much of their, their time to do that. Yeah, they, they move around a lot. So it's, uh, you're trying to hit moving targets, uh, specific areas. Geofencing works really well, uh, targeting specific areas, cities, zip codes, stuff like that. Um, but it's the, the whole industry is evolving and it's real interesting to see how it's adapting to the digital age as opposed to how they used to do things 20 years ago. And so I'm, I'm kind of getting into marketing right at the right time. Cause I mean, 10 years ago, there wasn't a job called social media marketer or digital marketer. That wasn't a thing. And so right. I'm, I'm, I'm on the cusp of this new occupation and I'm kind of figuring it out. I mean, I don't have a degree. I got out of the army and I, I had a family and I just had to get a job. But I was like, nah, if I get a job I hate, I'm, I'm going to lose my mind. So I had to put myself out there, do the freelancing stuff. And luckily, I got a, a bite at a company that would give me a shot and it's worked out. So uh, I'm going to write it, write it as much as I can. <laughs> right, right. Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying this episode. I just wanted to take the opportunity to let you know about a brand new resource I recently published. If you're interested in starting your own podcast, I've created an ebook called Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro that walks you through all the little details of producing and launching your own show. So for less than $5, you can own this resource by visiting storykingbooks.com or amazon.com. Those links will be in the show notes. And now back to today's episode. You can literally find anybody on the street, like let's say some random old person that doesn't look like anything. And if you ask them the right questions and you can tell their story and it can turn out to be amazing, Mm -hmm. but you have to, it's all in how it's told. So many people go through life thinking their life has been worthless, but if you tell it the right way and you put the focus on the right emotion it can make anybody's life amazing. And that's where perspective comes into play. Uh, right. If you have the right perspective on your life, it can be awesome. I agree a hundred percent. I believe like all human life is amazing. It's just kind of perception. And like you said, some people walk around 
feeling worthless or whatever because they, they don't really know the power of mm -hmm. their own story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I got a backlog of, of really great podcasts that I want to listen to more, but I'm also I'm also reading um or reading audiobook uh Man's Search for Meaning by Victor Frankel. Oh, Victor Frankel, yes, I have that book. Yes. Yeah. And uh I'm I listened to it on my plane ride to the San Antonio uh the first couple chapters and I was like, "Man, I was like this is good stuff because the way he describes himself is uh, he said he's a inborn optimist. He said mm -hmm. it kind of just like that's who he is, and that's how I've always been. And his outlook on being in a concentration camp and there's really no hope in sight yet. He still finds a way to have a meaning and a purpose uh, for his future if he does make that of their life. And uh, and it also mixes with stoicism, which is something I'm really big into. Is kind of owning the bad things that happen and fixing right. what you can, but also not stressing yourself out about the things that you can't. And uh, I don't know, for me, that mentality of all that is kind of what gets me through life. Mm -hmm. um, just being able to rationalize and understand the crappy things that happen. I mean, that it's our human existence is what it boils down to. It's not always fun. There's misery. It's guaranteed, actually. Misery is guaranteed people you love are going to die. You know, you're going to have misfortunes, but if you expect it before it happens, it lessens the blow right. and you just accept it as everybody has went through this. I'm not special and I'm still going to be happy and not right. let life beat me down. And, and uh, fortunately, a lot of people don't subscribe to that or they, or they say, I'm just brushing off emotions. But maybe some emotions need to be brushed off because some emotions can weigh you down. I haven't read uh, Man's Search for Meaning yet, but I've heard other people that I respect talk about it. So I've had the book on my mm -hmm. shelf for like a couple of years. And I know he was like a contemporary of Freud, um, but I like yeah. his framework better that, that you know, like like what's, you know, driving our, our, our uh, subconscious is... Yeah. Uh, you know, more of our search for meaning. To me, that makes a lot more sense than Freud's, uh, you know, weird sexual yeah, it, stuff. It, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what's cool about Viktor Frankl is he didn't even bastardize these other psychologists. He built off of what they did and, and spun it, what they were saying in a different way. And um, basically the main difference that I tried explaining it to my wife the other day was, well, Freud is more of a sexual... I am how I am because of things that happened. Mm -hmm. Victor Frankl is more of a, I am how I am because of what has happened, but also how I view what is possible in my future. Cause some people have such shitty existences in life that they can't picture a bright future. So that's how they form depression. That's how they just, that's how suicides happen because they just don't see a way out of it. And, and that's a big part of Viktor Frankl's book is like, how come more people didn't just commit suicide in the concentration camps? And he breaks down because he was there. He right. broke down his mental process, how he, how he viewed other people and their resiliency. And I'm like, I can get down with that. <laughs> right. And just the whole idea, too, of the ability to choose thoughts. You know, it's kind of a wild idea that you can have a thought to control other thoughts, <laughs> you know, and yeah, all the yeah, yeah all the ancient uh, people knew about this, you know, you know, Buddhists with their mm -hmm. mindfulness, uh, 
even in Christianity, you know, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, yeah. think on these things, you know, like it's this intentional, like you got to control your thought life. And people don't really talk about that when it comes to depression. They always look at it as a chemical imbalance. Victim. It needs to be or, or yeah. a victim mentality too. Right. And they need to be medicated yeah. or whatever when it's really, you got to intentionally you know, yeah. control your thoughts. I think, I think the word, the word you're using intentionally is, is spot on uh, just cause I mean, you have to make an effort and a lot of people do, don't make that effort. They find excuses instead of making efforts or they, or they blame it on something else. Right. Or they, or, or they think that whatever the cause is, is out of their control. And uh, that's not, I think most of the time that's not the case. Right. And I, I heard, uh, I heard one guy say, uh, it was a cool example. It was a pastor for many years ago. I heard this example. I never forgot about it. But it's uh, to, in terms of controlling your thoughts, it says you can never stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop them from building a nest on top of your head. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So thoughts yeah, are going to come that, and go. It makes but, complete sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I like that. I like that. Yeah. Now, on your blog, and also you mentioned it a couple of uh, minutes ago, you said you're, you're a prepper. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, so the term prepper, I guess, has been a little bastardized via the, the TV show <laughs> preppers and uh, the whole conspiracy theory side of the house, I guess. But yeah, I guess for lack of a better term, I'm definitely a prepper. I, I'm always interested <laughs> in people who take prepping seriously. I, I know one guy who does. He's a retired police officer. And why don't you tell us why it's important to be prepared for the worst and what can people do who perhaps don't have a lot of space like myself, for example, I'm in a New York City, small New York City apartment who don't have a lot of money to buy extra supplies. What do you suggest for disaster preparedness for people with limited means? And should we be taking it a little more seriously during these tumultuous times our country is facing? <laughs> Yeah, I, I would say, I, well, I think I was talking to somebody the other day about how I'm pretty sure every middle-aged guy out of every decade that there's ever been has pondered the thought that probably in the next 20 years, their country is going to go to crap and they got to prepare that. I think that's a, I think that's an instinct that we have. Uh, maybe it's half paranoia, uh, but I always tell people don't, don't prep for a specific situation. A lot of people will be like, oh, I think it's going to be nuclear fallout. So they'll get an entire hazmat suits for their family and they'll put Faraday boxes in their basement with their electronics in it and all this kind of crazy stuff. Or they'll be like, oh, I'm prepping for a zombie apocalypse. Okay, that's extreme. Uh, but funny enough, prepping for zombie apocalypse is actually my closest far-fetched idea to what I actually do. Because if you cut out just the zombies, any extreme situation that happens is going to end up in that kind of setting. So if you prep for a zombie style situation where you're going to need food, you're going to need water, you're going to need uh, a network, a community of people, probably you're going to need medicine. You're going to have to forage. You're going to have to do all this stuff. Now that's on the extreme spectrum of prepping. Um, and, and, and I consider myself more of a, generalist when it comes to prepping. So just do the basics, have a way to protect yourself, have a, a at least go through the thought process of what it takes to, because uh, a lot of people are afraid to go through the thought process. They'll, they'll reach that point. Like, yeah, if something bad happened, I mean, 
that'd be scary. But then they never go on further. Like, like, like realistically, if I was to ask you tomorrow, <laughs> all, all electricity goes out of New York. Supermarkets are closed. There is no more supply chain. What is your plan? Like, what would you really do? Do you plan on staying in your, uh, in your apartment? Do you plan on maybe moving further out into the country? Uh, and, and, and these questions are hard because there's so many nuanced pieces of it. People have different goals. Like, do you plan on meeting up with a group? Okay, that's cool. Let's say you got a group. Do those group members have different priorities than you and your family or whoever's with you? So you got to think these parts through. And if they don't match up, well, maybe think, think through it a little bit further because when it does happen, you don't even have to store any food. You don't have to store weapons or ammo. If you just go through that full thought process of, okay, if point A happened, where would I go at point B? What, what if this happened? What if that happened? Okay. So you at least refresh your mind on the possibility. So when it does happen or if it does happen, you're at least already thought through it. You can act quicker. You, mm-hmm. you know where to go. You've already talked to this person about it. So there's already somewhat of a framework in place for that scenario. And that's my main thing is really just the thought process of it. What are you individually going to do in where you live, who you're around and your, the resources that you have? Cause that's going to vary person to person. Right. No, that's a very good way to put it to basically have a plan to, and to think it out. Cause a lot of people don't think it out. And when we think of prepping, we, we're thinking of a bunker with stockpiles of stuff and a closet <laughs> and, and, of ammo. And that's preferred. <laughs> and that's preferred if you can have it, but it's not realistic. <laughs> right. You know, and you said another thing that I never he- heard anybody talk about um, when it comes to prepping. You mentioned uh, having uh, like a network of other people to that you can rely yeah. on. I never hear anybody uh, talk about that. That seems almost more important than stockpiling anything. <laughs> uh, and, and it most likely will be. And and if you think about the business world or civilian world or whatever you whatever industry you work in, networking is pretty important. Um, it's even more so important when when let's say let's say you're prepper enough to where you've turned your backyard into a fully functioning garden, but you mainly grow potatoes, tomatoes, and you have some chickens. Okay, you got those things, but you're still going to need other stuff that you can't produce on your own or you don't know how. So it's better to have those people that you already know and trust, and maybe they have stuff that you can trade and barter with. Or, Or maybe even just security is the thing that you offer. Like for me, I own a lot of guns. I know how to use them. I was in the military. Uh, and, and my close friends know that as well. And I would be the first person a lot of them would come to if they had a need for defense or they needed help with a violent situation. I can help with that. But mm-hmm. then again, if I needed chicken eggs, I might need to go to my other friend's house that's got chickens and be like, yo, dude, I'll trade you this box of ammo if you'll give me, you know, two <laughs> dozen eggs. And, you know, and he might be like, okay, cool. You know, so uh, it's all... It, it, there's many different ways that collapse could happen or, you know, uh, apocalypse could go down. But if you plan for the basic necessities, water, shelter, food, security, you can't go wrong with mm-hmm. prepping. Okay. It makes sense. So you have this blog and website, gary-phipps.com. What can we expect from you in 2021? More short stories, more blogging, any books in the works? What's in store? <laughs> uh, no books as of yet. 
Um, there is a book I do want to work towards. Me and my wife, like I said, have known each other since we were four years old. Uh, we both have pretty unique backgrounds and experiences and kind of how both she and I came together and what we created out of it from our crazy backgrounds. I would really like to make a sort of fictional autobiography. So it's kind of a based on a true story um, mm-hmm. account of my life, but I want to, I like the theatrics of storytelling. I want to, I mean, yeah, I could tell it ha- as is, and it would be interesting from a, if you're a realistic story reader, but I want to tell it and spice it up to where it's just like this amazing story. And uh, I, I attempted not too long ago, probably about a month or so ago of writing an outline of me and my wife's background and our stories. And, and I got done with it and I was like, I'm not going to post it on my blog. I said, I'm going to have my wife read it first. So I gave it to her and I had her read it. And she told me it's kind of just sad. (laughs) And and I was like, and I, and I was like, Oh really? And she was like, yeah. She's like, you're just basically naming out in chronological order of what happened. Now I try to put emotion into it, but it was like too real almost. And it, and it didn't give the overall feel of what I wanted for that story. So that is going to be in the works one day, hopefully is, is, is a version of my story that might be interesting for the masses. But as far as 2021 goes, I'm really going to stick to probably articles on topics that I'm interested in. It's going to be things that I'm passionate about. I'm really passionate about individual freedom and liberty. I feel like uh, people should have the ability to not be told what to do uh, by whether it be other people or the government. I feel like if you're living a reasonable life, you're not hurting anybody, you're not stealing their stuff. Why shouldn't you be able to do what you want to do? I I, I like spreading the message of freedom and liberty, um, especially in these times. I mean, regardless if you're left or right, what's going on right now in the media with censorship and big tech doing what they're doing, it's Mm -hmm. not it can lead to very bad things, regardless of whatever you think of the people that they're blocking now. That means they can block you in the future. So I'm real passionate about uh, liberty and uh, freedom and and maintaining those and without not letting that slip away. But also, like I said, I'm I'm a space nerd. I like like a little bit of fantasy. I like a little bit of sci-fi. I like whatever strikes my fancy, honestly, that day. Sometimes it's something really dark and profound, like about death and, and how I process death and how I feel like other people could process that better. Um, and so I really don't know, but I'm excited about it because I feel like I have something to say. I just don't know what it is, and, but I'm going to say it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you have a lot of energy and, and a good spirit to, to communicate whatever message you have. So you definitely uh, have some good things in your future for sure. I see. Well, thank you. I, I hope so. Now, you have an interesting life experience and repertoire of skills. Any last takeaways or nuggets of wisdom for our listeners out there? Yeah. Um, stop being so mean to each other. I mean, honestly, if, if I'm talking to everybody out there, like everybody can have their own opinion and that's cool and you should. But yeah, I think everybody should take responsibility on their own part of thinking Am I being too narrow-minded when thinking about that other individual that maybe I don't agree with? Maybe that, under, that other individual had different life experiences that led them to think the way that they did and is still justified. Maybe 
I'm not right about everything. You know, and if, and if we all appre- if we all approached conversations that we had with people that we don't agree with like that, more open-minded, more accepting of the fact that we're not going to agree on everything and that's okay, we can still be friends. And right. there's just so much divisiveness and it's not going to help anybody. And I think if we all just kind of took a step back and decided to be, be kinder, you have to literally to decide to be kinder in order for it to work. And not enough people are doing that. <laughs> right. And it's such a simple piece of advice, but it's probably the best thing I've heard in the last two days. <laughs> Just stop being mean <laughs> to each other. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, you can look on my Facebook recently. I shared a thing and you know that scene from Billy Madison where he has the two shampoo bottles. And, uh, and so, so the name said... Uh, Oh, my, my petition's better. No, mine's better. And I'm like, that's what, that's what everybody's doing right now. And, and people need to just chill out. <laughs> right. And not start a civil war yeah. over uh, their differences here, right? Yes. Yes. Preferably. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so if people wanted to reach out to you or follow you, where can they go about doing that, Gary? Uh, on most social media platforms, I'm at uh gary bear 86 says g-a-r-y-b-e-a-r 86 uh, or you can just go to my website at uh, gary-phipps.com and uh you can leave a comment or send me a message on there but usually social media is the best way honestly i mean i respond to pretty much anybody that sends me a message uh i'm not i'm not i'm not facebook famous or anything but uh you know i gotta i got something to say and if you like what i say then stick around <laughs> awesome well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Gary. I really appreciate it. No, I appreciate uh, you having me on. So that was my interview with Gary Phipps. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I have. His links will be in the show notes. Don't forget to sign up on storykingbooks.com to get your free copy of Kane's Confession. Remember, if you're interested in starting your own podcast, you can visit my website or amazon.com and for less than $5, purchase my latest ebook resource, Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro. Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash the story king. All those links will be in the show notes. One more thing, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do me the favor of subscribing to it and leaving a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, or the medium of your choice. And share it with your friends and family on social media. I would greatly appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the Story King Podcast, the show all about fiction, film, and form. Please join us next time. Until then. 